Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I'll give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Tracy Garner. She was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy at two years old, but now she's a best-selling author, speaker, and disability advocate. She writes fiction and nonfiction books depicting African-Americans triumphing over adversity, and she also helps people with disabilities reach their independent living goals. So I'm excited to get to talk to Tracy today. So thank you so much for being here. Tracy, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, thank you so much, Sarah, for having me. My name is Tracy Garner, as you so graciously mentioned in the intro. Um, I am in the Northern Virginia area, just outside of D.C. I love writing. Writing found me at a time when I was severely depressed over rejection in the college days and um, just dealing with my academic life, which was not going well at the time. But since that time, I started writing in college and I entered a writing contest that really changed my life because I won uh, for one. And um, I got my book published as a result of the contest win. And I've really been on that journey. Writing has um, just been a wonderful tool for me to express myself. Um, I do have muscular dystrophy and I use a wheelchair, as you mentioned, And um, I've been disabled all my life, and I got my first wheelchair in elementary school, actually. Um, And I should say that I got my first power chair in sixth grade, where I took off because my dad wanted me to have a manual chair, and I didn't want that. I was like, you want me to push myself? Are you kidding? Sounds labor-intensive. So um, I was so happy to finally get a power chair And I've had one all this time and it's just been liberating um, and fun. And I drive my own vehicle, a modified vehicle with hand controls. Um, I've written 18 books and counting. I have another one coming out uh, later this fall in November. And um, I I just love writing and it just saved me from so much. And uh, I'm just thankful that I was able to find a creative outlet that has really worked for me and giving me not only purpose, but a lucrative opportunity to earn money um, with my passion. Uh, It sounds like you've got a lot going on. So I'm excited for all the topics that we can discuss. But I'd like to first have you share a little bit more about these 18 books and the 19th one coming soon, kind of what topics you explore and how, you know, you've continued publishing since that first contest that you won. Yeah, I just, you know, I really um, just, I feel a sense of uh, angst when I don't take time to write down the ideas. And I also, it's part mental health because I'm living vicariously through my characters. They get to experience everything. Of course, I give them like a lot of hell, you know, a lot of adversity. And I'm like crying with them. Like, I'm so sorry you're going through this. And they're looking at me like, you're the one putting me through this. Um, But it's fun to kind of play like a small god in a fictional world to give characters adversity, the same adversity that I feel in my day to day, but to have them confront their challenges and then overcome them. Just recently, earlier today, I do writing sprints and I had a writing sprint with my partner, writing sprint partner. She's up in Colorado, even though she's from uh, here in Virginia where I live. But 
we uh, write for 25 minutes and then we take a break for a five minute gab session and then we keep writing. So right now I'm working on a story about a woman who is a twin and her twin died um, more than 10 years ago and left her children behind. Um, and so the sister is taking care of the children. And so dealing with that, you know, the loneliness and they were twins, the sister's one of the sisters, the sister that died had twins. And so now the sister left is raising the twins. And she never told anybody that she was herself a twin. Um, it's always been kind of under wraps because it was a way for her to kind of deal with losing someone that was such a part of herself. And so I'm doing all this research about the connectedness of twins and how Things um, can happen to them and how they feel each other, um, their emotions and everything. So that's just been fascinating to um, to read about and to try to put vignettes of that into my work. And um, of course, there's a love interest. He's trying to love her through all of her battles and the unprocessed grief that she has. And so that's what a lot of my stories are about. Everybody has some emotional Achilles heel. And that's what really speaks out, speaks to me in my writing is I usually confront emotion first and then work on all the other description and, and all the supplemental parts of a good story. But it's really emotion that's really resonates with me um, when I'm fleshing out my characters and when I'm just starting their work. And do you find that you put yourself into your, the books as you live vicariously through them? Absolutely. That's probably all most of what it is. It is the emotion for longing, um, some probably some companionship, uh, dealing with yourself and all your own issues and what I call your unfavorites. I think we all have unfavorable things that we probably dislike about ourselves, And so some of that is characters working through that, learning to accept it. I had to accept my disability sometimes. I used to pray for being cured or, you know, miraculously walking or something like that. But then, you know, as I grew up and I saw it wasn't a cure, um, but I just learned to kind of deal with it and really still have an upbeat attitude and outlook about it and just work with it as best I can. I mean, I think we're all in some ways walking around somewhat wounded, but we learn to deal with our wounds and we... Um, you know, we, you have to make a conscious choice, I think, to be happy. You know, people say the same thing about marriage. Like you have to decide that nothing is going to deter you um, and nothing's going to lead you and point you toward force. You have to decide the same with life, that you're going to make a conscious effort to deal with the unfavorites and the difficult parts and still choose to live and try to live happily and peacefully. So you mentioned there a little bit about, you know, kind of how you've had to accept like there is no cure. Um, can you talk a little bit, especially like going through childhood and then like getting that first power wheelchair, what it's been like living with your disability? Yeah, it's been okay. I credit a lot of my attitude and my upbeatness with my parents. Um, I think that um, in one of my books on disability, which is nonfiction that came out in January, I talk about how the child's um, resilience and ability to cope with things is going to come directly from the parents 
ability to cope with something. And I've seen, you know, a lot of parents um, sometimes, and that's what my book is largely for. The book on disability is really about parents of children with special needs and youth and young adults um, who are going to be self-advocates, kind of advocating for their own needs and their own, uh, the things that they want out of life. But one of the things I try to drive home is that if you're going to fall out and have a tantrum um, as an adult, um, your child is going to mimic your exact behavior. And so my parents never really treated me as being different. Um, they wanted me to do the same things. You know, they, they made some concessions for sports, you know, and then, you know, most people with disabilities who use wheelchairs, like get into choir or chess club, you know, and sometimes I want to get away from those stereotypes. But for the most part, they didn't say, oh, you can't do that because you're disabled. Um, they really just said, well, let's figure out a different way or let's try it this way. And then my mom and I, because uh, my dad passed away in 2011, we are like the queen of the rig up. And by that, I mean, is that if we want to do something or if I want to do something, um, we just rig it up. It probably takes tape and glue and some random nails, but we are constantly finding ways for me to adapt to that life. And I credit them with that kind of attitude and approach to everything that I've done, um, even taking on some leadership positions. I never feel, sometimes I don't feel quite good enough. And then I go ahead and take it on. And I'm like, you can adapt to this. You will find a way to do that. And I think that, um, you know, parents will either uh, promote that or they'll be like, oh, honey, you know, I know you want to participate, but, you know, because of this thing that you have, you know, we can't do that. And so I just feel that that is so devastating and limiting in their own beliefs and their own unwillingness to, like I said, do the rig up. You got to, you know, duct tape it. You have to, you know, just you have to find a way to, to fix it and to make it accessible to you. And so I've always had that attitude about almost everything. And have most of like places you've been or like lived or worked or gone to school, like been physically accessible for you or have you had to break things up? Yeah, for the most part, I do have some devastating experiences where things were not accessible, but it was more about me and my feelings and not being able to participate. There's only like two big instances that I could think of. And that is when a special friend of mine uh, passed away and I couldn't go to her funeral. Um, it was going to be held during the school day. And I just felt like, you know, um, people that operated the school buses at that time could have taken some of us in the disabilities department to the funeral. But, you know, I was really young. I think I was in like ninth grade, maybe when she passed away, her name was Melinda. And, um, you know, I just think back on that. I was just thinking, um, as you asked that question, you know, why weren't the adults a little bit more, um, creative in what they thought? Like, let's, these kids hung out with this person. Um, and it just shows how far we've come because I have no doubt that in, at this time, if somebody died, there would be an accessible bus to get the kids who use wheelchairs and walkers and canes to the funeral um, of their friend, right? Because what an emotional and devastating thing to carry with you for the rest of your life. But I will tell you that my attitude about that changed only because I know that that experience gave me the drive to drive my own vehicle and to get my modifications 
paid for because I always remember how I felt. And like I said, I leave with emotion. I always remember just the loneliness, the devastation. I can't pay respects to my friends. Uh, my parent, nobody will get off work and take me. We didn't have an accessible van of our own um, at the time for them to come by and pick me up and they were working to provide for me. And so as an adult, you can understand some of the limitations, but I'm still a little bit personally unforgiving of the adults who were in my life because they did not, they did not, first of all, they didn't think it was that important that you'd be able to go and participate in, you know, the final farewell to a friend that you loved and really cared about. And secondly, that they just were unwilling to, um, to make that happen for you. So I have no doubt that things have changed. People have more leeway. Uh, first of all, these millennials will revolt, um, you know, and skip school and call their friends who have cars and just get on and just get on to the, to the, and with so many shootings and so many things, people are working to make that happen now, but it should have been that way for us. And so I do lament that, but, and that's the only thing that really bothers me is when I'm confronted with inaccessibility, then I have to really psych myself out not to become depressed and not to be like, what was me? I have to really um, challenge myself to find ways to cope with cope with uh, hurt feelings and feeling like I'm missing out or feeling like nobody wants to accommodate me. So it is a battle, but it doesn't happen that often. There's always a way to make something happen. Definitely. Now you mentioned there again, how you do drive an accessible vehicle. So can you take us through like, getting your license and then what it was like, you know, getting a vehicle that you can drive. Yeah, it was an amazing experience. Um, I had to learn to use hand controls. Um, I did fight with the state in order to get them to pay for some of it. But, um, but like I said, I remember that experience of not being able to go somewhere not being able to participate that really drove me. So I had the cutest instructor and that was maddening because he was so cute. He was sitting beside me, giving me instruction. I was thinking like, oh my God, I can't drive this car. We're going to crash and I'm going to kill my cute instructor. So um, it was hard for me to focus on really driving. My hand was often shaky and jerky, not really because of him, but because I was operating a vehicle with my hands and I sucked at video games. I couldn't even drive a car straight on my Atari without running off the road and crashing into a pole. So it's just so different, but I was determined and we worked together for about two weeks. Um, I ended up doing about 40 hours on the vehicle that he had because he has a vehicle that he uses specifically for people with disabilities and he can take over the controls anytime I'm getting uh, scared or, you know, having a problem so he can drive. So that's how I learned to drive. And then I took my test and I swear I had this mean woman who like I was over the line just a little bit. First of all, I was on a side street in a neighborhood that didn't have any freaking lines. So I was over a little bit and we got to the DMV. She was like, do you think you were over that line just a little bit? I was like, no lady, I worked too hard to get here. You better go in there and pass me and pass this test. I am not. So I got a highway restriction, but I was so happy. I just was like, even in my, my driver's license, I'm like, Yay! Uh, smiling brightly and, you know, all of them still turn out ugly no matter how much you smile. But anyway, um, so yeah, it was tough. Um, I got denied about six or seven times from my vocational rehabilitation counselor 
to get the money um, from the state. It wasn't his money at that time. And I just kept fighting. I kept uh, appealing the denial. My dad went down there to talk to him. Um, and eventually he quit. He either retired. I was like, you're too freaking old to be here anyway. Why don't you go ahead and retire? But um, he eventually retired. And as soon as my new case manager came, either they were tired of me appealing and they just gave up um, or he was really kind of green and they let him pass uh, whatever he submitted. So he was able to get me through um, my vehicle cost, almost $80,000. I got half of that paid for by the state and I had to finance the other half. I still have that vehicle 15 years later. It's on its last leg, but um, you know, but I continue to just believe I'll fundraise or I'll do something to really get um, and get that financed because driving is such freedom um, it's such a wonderful thing and uh, you underestimate how much it means to you when you don't have it. But that's kind of my story. It was a hard time. It was a depressing time going out with my instructor. I was trying to learn as much as he was trying to teach me. Um, then, the, then the instructor and the thing about the driving test is that the instructor can't ride with you. I was alone with mean lady, you know, giving me instruction and trying not to be nervous and, and, you know, doing everything she asked me to do. And then one time I even went the wrong way and she, and I think I I subconsciously went the wrong way because I didn't want to get on that particular highway because that would have been, so it was kind of like my subconscious saved me, but you know, I made it, I triumphed, I made it, I stuck to it. I did the appeals. Um, and that's what people need to do. You know, you just cannot take no for an answer. Um, and you have to, these are the things you want to improve your quality of life. Then you have to be willing to go through. What did I, what if I had given up? You know, what if I had let this man, you know, tell me, we're not going to pay for this. We're not going to help you. And the sad part is, is that he was asking me about my health. And if he, I, it was almost like they thought I would bite the bullet and here they've spent all this money on me um, and I'm not worthy somehow of them supporting me. And it's like at the end of the day, that is not their decision to make. And my my response was always, you know, you could go outside and uh, get hit by a bus. Should you not go to lunch? You know, that was always my kind of um, thing. Like if you think you're going to just, you know, bite the bullet or just die, why do anything? Like this was my life. This my, was my ticket to my independence. And I had to really fight for that. Right. And it's so important to have that independence. Now, cost aside, are the inaccessible vehicle like yours, are they easy to get or are they like extremely limited and hard to find? No, they're actually not. You can get it tomorrow if you have, you know, enough funds to fork down. Um, but, you know, the thing is that the veterans are able to get modified vehicles very, very easily because of the VA. Uh, people with disabilities who are not veterans, do, who do not have any service time, really don't get the support that they, and I know they deserve it. And it's, you know, because they've served time and served in war. I get that. I have a brother who's was in the military and recently retired. So it's not that it's just that, um, you know, sometimes the stipulations we place like same disability, just acquired a different way, you know, it's made. And I, and I also just want to state that I know that there are a gazillion other issues 
with our um, with veterans getting the care that they seek. So I don't want to negate that. But usually equipment, vehicles, uh, modifications to their homes, you know, some of them, some of the things that we give to other people seems a lot easier for them to prove their need than it does for, you know, little Tracy and other people like her who are just born with their disability. Like that's not glamorous. Oh, you were just born with it? Yep. It just, you know, I was here when I got here and I have it, you know, as opposed to, oh, you were injured? How? You know, and or if you had a diving board accident, you were injured later. Like we're so mystified and enamored about the way in which people with disabilities acquire. And if you don't have that story, then it's like, oh, that's too bad. You know, it's not as it's not as fun. It's not as glamorous. It's not a story. It's just, oh, that sounds boring, actually. So sorry. You know, if the people are almost apologetic for the way if you're born with your disability as opposed to acquiring it. Right. It's just kind of always been part of life. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned earlier about, you know, like the support from your parents. So were they prepared um, when you were really young to deal with your disability and accommodate? I don't know if they were prepared. I mean, um, I would say that I think you're never really prepared for those kinds of things. But I think if you have mental fortitude that says we're going to deal with something, no matter what, I should mention that my dad was an ordained minister um, at 19 or 17, I think, when I got here. Um, And so um, when they had me at like 25, he had a church and he was a pastor. So I think that part of that was a faith kind of thing that they always had that things would work out. I would be okay. My dad was a huge advocate, always going down to my elementary school, telling them, this is what she needs. This is what you're going to do. This is how we're going to support her. And so, um, and my mom too, but my, um, I just remember vividly my dad always coming down and there's all these, you know, Caucasian ladies gathered around the table and there's this big black man that just contrast always, um, made me remember, like, I always wonder, like, what was he thinking? Um, And I write about that in my book, too. Like, what was he thinking? How did he not, you know, take no for an answer? Um, IEPs today are such volatile experiences for parents that it's almost sad that parents get pitted against the school when the child should be the main concern. Sometimes the school doesn't want to give the funding in order to create supports in the classroom. And then sometimes the parents don't have advocacy training in order to get those things. And then some kids get more things than other kids. You know, we still have marginalized voices who don't get anything. And we have people who get everything. They get aid in the classroom. They get extended time and breaks. Um, They have a caregiver who's able to come. Maybe the mom is able to come and stay there all day. And then you go to another school in a different district. Mom can't come. Uh, We won't permit that because all the children will want their mom. Uh, We don't have books on tape uh, for them to study. Like there's just so much um, animosity between the two parties. It makes education hard. So I think that, um, you know, my dad being a God-fearing man, my mom and my dad being God-fearing and faithful, my dad a minister, my mom was in the choir, just a lot of faith talk and a lot of background about believing that you can do things and that God is with you. And so I think that that made a difference. Yeah. Now, when you were in school, were you surrounded by other kids who used a wheelchair or had a disability? Just a couple. 
couple, they only put like not more than two of us in the same classroom. It was like, we need to, like, it was like diversity. We need a couple of them to go around to a different classes. Um, up until fourth grade, honestly, I was still not being mainstreamed. And like I said, it was because my dad came down to the school and said, she's not being challenged. She doesn't need special education. She may need some supports. Like I needed a special desk in my mainstream classroom. Maybe I needed, you know, other things. Maybe I needed PT that I could just do for an hour during the day and then go to my mainstream classes. Um, but today there's no longer any real busing of kids to special schools. You go to your home school and a social worker or a nurse or somebody comes and visits you at that school. So there's no long, there's no more of this kind of, we're going to congregate all the people with disabilities at this one school. So, um, and I like that they don't do that anymore because I always was going to a different school for K through six. I went to one school for um, seventh and eighth uh, middle school. I went to another school and then I went to another high school um, for nine through 12. And all of these schools were not in my neighborhood. And that sucked because I wasn't able to build those relationships with kids that lived near me. And so you don't realize what you're missing out. You don't see Johnny and Susie at the store that you also go to. You know, you'll see other kids, but you don't know them. And so that I feel like did hamper some relationships and the ability to build relationships by going to a different school and not going to your own school. So I remember really happy, even though I think it might be sometimes tougher on kids, especially if you're the only one with a disability in your neighborhood school, I think that that can be tough, but I also think it forces you, it forces the kids to get to know you because they're going to see you more regularly. And it forces you to just, kind of, you know, act or try to be as quote unquote normal as you can. Yeah. Now you've mentioned the book that you released earlier this year, the nonfiction book about disability. So can you share a little bit kind of like why you released that book compared to say some of your other fiction books? Yeah, so I've been working on my disability book for over probably 10 or 12 years. And that is because at, the, at my first vision of that book, I wanted my other friends with disabilities to help me write it. Um, I imagined that all of us, maybe 10 or 12 of us, we even had a little lunch where I presented it to them and we discussed it. And I was like, I want all of you to kind of go through your day and offer tips about how you deal with different scenarios seemed like a great idea. Everybody was like, yeah, 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 let's do that. That sounds awesome. And then nobody wrote anything. And I was so mad. And I was already writing like several books at that time. But I just remember that it was like crickets, like nobody, I even offered to pay them. I was like, I'll give you $50 if you write your article. And I was like, gosh, 50 times 12, that's a lot of money, Tracy, what are you going to do? But, um, but nobody wanted to kind of go along with me. So what I decided to do is that I wanted to get the book out. I could go through my own day and I could talk about my own tips that I had. So in nine areas, that's what I did. I wrote about my experience with employment, um, uh, discrimination, workplace bullying, uh, what I believe people with disabilities need to be able to get the job and maintain the job because the maintaining the job is a lot harder than just getting hired. It's really staying in that position and having longevity. I talk about emergency preparedness. Uh, caregiving, what it's like to have a caregiver and have someone who's virtually a stranger 
you know, care for you and help you every day and how hard that can be and what an adjustment it is, especially for people who've had their mother and father take care of them for most of the rest, most of their life. Um, so I'm talking about nine topics in the book um, that I go over and I just talk about a little bit of a kind of a take action is at the end of each chapter. My story is the middle and then key takeaways is at the beginning of each chapter. And I just go through. And what I decided was now that people saw me do the book, I would then, you know, use that as a platform to get other people to do volume two, because the book I wrote is volume one. And I really hope when all is said and done over the next five or six years to have like five or six volumes of all these different subjects. And I really want it to be kind of a reference for people with disabilities to say, I'm having trouble in my employment. I don't know what to do. Should I go on social security or should I try to keep working? I want them to pick up my book and be like, well, what did Tracy do? And they can go in there and look and see, oh, I can, okay, this, I understand what she did. And now I'm going to try to do the same, or that doesn't quite work for me. At least I know what I could do, but I'm going to go this other way. And so that's all it is. I really want it to be a long time reference book. I really hope to even take it online for people to look up and search different subjects and to learn about our unique experience and then really use that to help them with the issues in their own lives. And have you had any sort of like traditional employment outside of publishing books and being a speaker? Yep. I've been working since I was 16 years old outside the home. Um, I've been an intern several times. I currently still work. Um, as a case manager for a nonprofit organization in the D.C. area here. And so I've been there for 13 years. So um, I've definitely always worked. I love working. It's dignifying. But, you know, I still think about going and, um, you know, not working any longer and pursuing my writing full time. Um, And if that didn't work, you know, I think about like what it would be like to have to use Social Security. And I was on Social Security disability when I was in college because I would just go to college, you know, take my I use most of my money from my disability benefits to pay my college tuition. Um, And so I have been on that. But working is just, you know, a really good experience. Um, Sometimes their benefits are better and you can obviously make more than the federal government gives you. Um, And honestly, you know, some of the social security programs, they're really kind of a cycle of just poverty. There really isn't any way sometimes for people to really make a living wage and to live and pay for the things they need, especially when you have a medical condition, condition, which costs a lot of money when you get sick and the equipment that you need, you know, electronic bed, the vehicle I mentioned, the wheelchair, and when it breaks down, new tires, all these things add up. And, you know, um, it has to be what's right for you. You know, I'm not bashing anyone who's receiving monthly uh, benefits because I still think about going on them at some times. Um, it just depends on my overall physical ability. And that's what really I have to consider, especially as I age. So how do you have time to work as a case manager and be authoring these books? Yeah, nights and weekends. I love, I actually have a lot of energy after that last call or that last report I have to write for work. 
Um, but from about five to nine every night and one hour in the morning, because me and my partner do like sprints from like seven to eight or seven thirty to eight thirty. Um, and we, we can get at least four sprints in at 20 minutes each. Um, and then, you know, I start my work day, do that. And then again at five, um, every, luckily everything is in front of the computer. So even if I have a good lunch break, I can usually write about, you know, five to six pages just on a little break. And so I really try to write at every opportunity on the weekends, um, at night, I do most of my writing on Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night. And today is a holiday. Today is Labor Day. And so I've been writing actually all day because um, I'm trying to finish the book that's coming out in the fall in, in November. But um, and I also use dictation. That is a real time saver. I don't use Dragon or anything. Both Google Docs and Microsoft Word have microphone buttons where you can um, just talk like I'm talking to you and I'm able to get about two to 4,000 words in like a, in like a 30 minute session of just talking to my story. And, um, now some of it's gibberish. I'm not going to lie because I don't know. I'll go on a tangent or I don't know where I'm supposed to be in the story, but I'm still able to get the words down and you can fix words that you get down. You can't fix a blank screen. So that's also just some hacks that I use. And I also do it at night. Like if I can't sleep in the middle of the night, I'll pull out my phone. There's a microphone button for your phone. I will talk into an email and send it to myself. And then I'll get whatever I've talked, the text part out of it and cut and paste it into the main document. So that is like, that's actually honestly how I finish a lot of my books. I'm able to really get going, but then when the books get kind of hard to the middles and really wrapping everything up, the dictation has really been a lifesaver. It wasn't something I always use. My fingers work fine and I type about 90 words a minute, but, um, but the dictation, you know, especially as you get older, they say you don't need as much sleep. Um, if I'm not sleeping, I am going to be writing using my phone. Well, it's great because, you know, you've talked about how writing is such this big passion. So it was kind of like, you should be writing all of the time, but it seems, you know, like in any spare moment you, you are writing. Yep. Yep. I wrote a chapter while waiting for the doctor. Once I was early for an appointment. I just sat in my car. It was a nice and beautiful warm day. And I just, you know, I just wrote, I just talked and I was able to record all of that and just send it to myself. And it's there when I get, when I get, home to my desktop, because I mostly write on my desktop, and just cut and paste that prose into the main document. So what kind of books do you write mostly? Well, my heart is in romance. I've only written about three nonfiction books. I wrote The Guide on Disability, A Field Guide for the Rest of Us. Um, I've written uh, kind of a self-help part journal. It's like a prompt journal, but I write stories first, like short stories about um, different experiences, embracing yourself. Um, that's called Pack Light Thoughts for the Journey. And then I wrote a publishing action guide, which is also nonfiction. But all other 14 books or so are really my first love, which is the romance, which is seeing people get together, um, triumph over adversity and find love. Um, so that's where my heart is at, but I do have another nonfiction book coming out next year called author life audit because I've been writing, um, for 21 years now, 
um, I actually came up with 15 chapters, how to audit your author life and kind of tweak some of those parts of it that aren't going as great as you want. So I talk about, you know, your website. This To me, I wrote this because, you know, I always wanted someone to really kind of assess my career and I never found valuations and tools to do that. And so, you know, Toni Morrison says that the book that you want hasn't been written yet, you need to write it. And so I did. And so now people can use that. They can take a chapter um, and just, you know, kind of comb their author life and see what they need. I talk about streams of income. You know, a lot of writers diversify their income through teaching, which I'm also teaching. I'll be teaching a class in the fall at Rosemont College in Pennsylvania. Um, and then, you know, how do you want to expand your author life, you know, to try to earn more income and diversify your offerings? So for me, it's through teaching. I do some grant writing on the side. Um, so those are just the different chapters, 15 total, um, that I explore for a way for you to assess that portion of your author life and fix it. Yeah. So what will you be teaching this fall? This fall, I'll be teaching Write to Publish. It's a six-week course um, for writers who would like to know the ins and outs of the publishing industry. Um, I'm so excited to be teaching. I actually just met the person who invited me to submit a proposal this summer at a conference I was at. And um, she was like, you know, I'll get you um, some information, submit a proposal. And I was just so grateful to meet her and to um, talk about it. But I did used to teach for almost 15 years at Northern Virginia Community College here in my area. I taught a total of three different classes as an adjunct. And I loved teaching. I have about 12 published students. All of them I have helped at various iterations uh, publish their own work. And so that is always another stream of income that is always so fun to me is to help facilitate them publishing their own work because it's such an arduous process. There are so many paths you can take and there's potential to lose a lot of money. And so I really uh, try to focus on that too, is, is, not, is helping people not um, just mess over their money so much with editors and ISBNs, these are things you need, but there is a way to ensure that you don't, um, you know, end up spending so much money that you can't recoup because you don't, that you don't know how to sell books once they get onto the platforms. Now, one of the other things, you know, kind of in your main bio is that you're a disability advocate. So obviously, you know, you advocate for yourself and all of that. So what do you do to help others? What I do mostly is um, around kind of some key things, um, obviously transportation. Uh, I've always advocated um, helping get a transportation system. Um, it was here, but it wasn't very good in my area. So I do a lot of testimonials at Board of Supervisors meetings, really trying to be present. I'm not as present as I once was, but I was really often at the microphone with my three-minute spiel, um, going over my three minutes and getting kind of taking getting a tisking at. Um, but I always had something to say about, you know, how terrible it is for people who can't get around um, and who can't just jump in somebody's car and go. You know, it, it affects employment. It affects quality of life just to be able to go to the movies. And when you don't have an accessible vehicle, 
I'm fortunate enough to have and I can't transfer. I'm in my wheelchair 16 hours a day. I cannot transfer to ride in somebody's car. And what are they going to do with my power chair? It's heavy. They can't lift it. So I'm always advocating for transportation. I've been working or starting to look into more um, some of the healthcare advocacy for women to be able to get screenings because a lot of uh, it's not just the attitudes that are that are, it's not just the physical barriers of getting on someone's exam table and not having the help that you need, but it's the attitudes of the providers that deter you from getting mammograms and getting um, gynecological exams. So that's a huge thing that I think will become more prevalent. And then um, I do a lot of social security applications. I get people their benefits um, and always working for that. So I just try to be a voice on some of the issues. I'm always sending a letter, um, a letter to anyone, to Medicaid, Medicare services, to Congress, to, um, you know, anyone who wants to hear about what are the needs. And so I'm a local regional voice, but no less important in highlighting the need and making sure people know about what what the issues are right now, I would love to be able to get on a plane and stay in my wheelchair. Most people don't know that I have to be transferred. I'm often transferred by somebody who doesn't speak English, you know, and it's not, that's not such a big deal of in and of itself, except you're doing something that you really need to be able to communicate. So you don't drop me and break a leg or break an arm. And also so the people don't hurt themselves. So we really need, um, you know, I'm looking for anybody um, you know, even writing Elon Musk, I tweeted him about, you know, could you work on something that's really, really vital? And that is to help get people with disabilities, um, to be able to travel and to be able to explore their world from the comfort of their wheelchair. And that is something that I really hope we'll realize, um, in the next, you know, 10 years. Definitely. And I think that specific issue has been something that's Social media is doing a good job of like bringing to other people's attention and how important it is and how dangerous it can be going through transfers or what happens to your chair and how you then are on the plane. Yeah, I haven't traveled in a plane since 2015, uh, mostly because they hurt my leg and um, they did bust up my wheelchair. Now, I know people say, well, they're going to pay for it. That is so true. But you have to stay at the airport and file the paperwork. You can't leave because you assume if you leave, everything's fine and it's not fine. The second thing is that my wheelchair is broke right now. I can't find anybody to fix it. I got to take it with me and it doesn't work. And then whoever has to push me or has to help me, you know, that's a burden on them too. So yes, the airline will pay for it, but it's not immediate. The last time I broke my wheelchair, it took like three to six months for them to get all the parts, to get it fixed. And of course, eventually, you know, the airline sent the check, you know, and got it done, but it's still such a hassle and, you know, you're damaging equipment that costs several thousand dollars. And that was really made for me. Most people don't even realize how much custom wheelchairs cost. And I get a new one every six or seven years because they eventually fall apart and receive wear and tear. Like I'm 45 and I'm on my like seventh or eighth wheelchair and it's almost time to get a new one. And it's a $13,000 investment. Most people think it like comes off the lot and it's like $500. And it's like, no, 
it's not. It's cost a ton. Everything costs. Everything we need costs. And so sitting on a plane, what I know about the planes is they don't want to give up those seats. They don't want to give you guys the inches for your derriere in the seats. They don't want to give us any inches to remove a couple seats and do the lockdowns for our chairs. So that's really, it's not even a question of, is it possible? It's a question of, you know, what, what is it going to cost them a $200, $300, you know, dollar uh, seat? Uh, and I'm willing to pay more. I would pay another $100 on top of my ticket just to be able to use my wheelchair. And I think that's sad. I wish, I hope they don't do that. But that is also something that I'm willing to compromise on too, just so I could go to some island or some, you know, foreign beach, um, you know, where the men speak different languages and wear no shirts. You know, I really could use that right now. <laughs> yes. Now, before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners today? I would say that, you know, even though my book is about disability, you would assume that it's for and by people with disabilities, but I encourage other people who have family members. Um, I think that people need to understand, you know, as a person with a disability, you are an undated with paperwork and bureaucracy and so many things that you have to get through. If you could read my book and then give someone the cliff notes or the tips and help these families, help your friend, um, you know, join in the advocacy uh, life with them and, and making a real difference. Don't be just like here, hand them a book and say, oh, this book I heard about, so great. You know, like who has the time um, when you're fighting for your life in various avenues, you know, to read? Can you, this book should spark discussion and to help uh, bring about awareness about some of the issues that people face. And so that's what I would say in my wrap up. And it's been a wonderful opportunity to chat with you, Sarah. Great. And it's so important for people to hear all of that. Now, at the end of all my episodes, I do ask one final question that is not related to do with anything we've talked about. So my question for you is, who would you like to narrate your life? Mm, that's such a good question and such a hard one. I'm trying to think of somebody's voice I really like. I love my Angela's voice. Um, but, um, I would also like somebody who has like a raspy roughened type of voice and I'm not sure who that is, but, um, but yeah, first choice would be my Angelo because I think she has such a dramatic way of telling and I want to be dramatized. <laughs> I've been traumatized. So let me be dramatized. That would be wonderful to have her um, just bring things to life and bring um, such depth to. And then maybe Tom Hanks. I feel like he has a good voice too, but I don't want to be too humorous, although I am a humorous person. But yeah, yeah, such a versatile actor. All right, that brings this episode to a close. If you are interested in getting any of Tracy's book, you can find them all on Amazon. That link will be in the description along with her website and her social media link. She absolutely loves Instagram and is also on Twitter. So feel free to go check those links out in the description. 
And of course, if you would like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description as well. It brings you to all of our past episodes, all of our social media, including Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, a link to do that is in the description as well. My email is also in the description if you would like to reach out to me be a guest or provide feedback, comments. I love hearing from all sorts of people. So feel free to connect with me. So thank you so much, Tracy, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.